The following program originally appeared on Tor.com and is being resyndicated here by io9. Welcome to the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hosted by John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to Episode 5 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. So here at Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, there's nothing we like better than reading stories about things like aliens lurking among us, magic spells, ghosts, demons and telepathic abilities so powerful that they can cause our enemies' heads to literally explode in a fountain of gore? But is it all just good fun? Or does any of it really happen? No. No, it's all just made up. <laughs> so claims today's guest, Brian Dunning of the Skeptoid podcast. Skeptoid is a weekly podcast that applies a bit of critical thinking to many of the stories in the mass media, stuff like aliens and magic, but also just things like alternative medicine, urban legends, and... Just basically anything that people believe that maybe deserves a second look. Skeptoid is among the top five most popular science podcasts at iTunes and has over 60,000 listeners, which is actually even more than Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> Just to give you a sense of perspective on how beloved it is. Skeptoid was actually one of the first podcasts I really got into. I, I think I discovered it somewhere around episode 80. And, and seriously, by the next day, I think I had listened to every single episode that was available. Uh, you know, they're only about 10 minutes long, so you can, you can listen to a ton of them. You know, I don't always agree with the show's conclusions, but it's always thought-provoking and well-researched, and the host, Brian Dunning, just manages to dig up just some of the craziest stories I've ever heard, and I really enjoy the way he, he reads his delivery. It's, all, it's just this perfect mix of acerbic and deadpan. So today we're going to find out a little bit more about Brian and Skeptoid and talk about a few of the more memorable stories he's covered on the show. And if you enjoy what you hear, be sure to check out the Skeptoid podcast at Skeptoid.com. So let's get Brian on the phone. Hello, this is Brian. Uh, hi, it's Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Good. So first of all, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, where'd you grow up and what's your educational slash professional background? Yeah, well, my name is Brian Dunning. I come from uh, Southern California, and uh, I studied computer science from the uh, earliest days of computers making into schools, which was, uh, I guess, the, the Apple II, Apple II Plus back in 1981, 82. Uh, and uh, in those days, studying computer science in college was basically COBOL and things like that that have no relevance to anything today. <laughs> but but um, I later got into advanced self-updating Java architectures. Uh, we um, A company that I founded was one of the first partners in IBM's BizTalk XML protocol program. And uh, kind of since those days, my consulting practice has turned more into um, the business end of things. I got involved in business investment, and and uh, I was kind of up there in the middle of the whole Silicon Silicon Valley dot com boom and bust. Uh, but uh, I also, while I was in college, minored in filmmaking, and I was uh, in, in film directing at uh, at UCLA. And the most valuable thing that I learned there, which I learned very quickly, was that I don't have the personality at all to be successful in film directing. But uh, I always had the passion for storytelling uh, and uh, and writing and, and entertainment. And it was really when podcasting first appeared that uh, I suddenly found this amazing confluence of all of my interests. It's got the, the creative aspect, the entertainment aspect, the um, the computer aspect. I do all the all of the behind the scenes programming on the skeptoid.com website and and all the forums and all of that stuff. And of course, the the whole science aspect. Being a, a lifelong science nut and reader of all books science related, uh, it was really just kind of came natural to start doing the skeptoid podcast. And it's I I, I got to say I'm I'm sorry it, it all this stuff didn't happen until so late in life because I've just been having the best years of my life for this past three, four years. Have you always been a skeptic or was that something that uh, developed over time? 
Yeah, always. Uh, I shouldn't say always because uh, I, I recall when I was in my late teens, early 20s, uh, it's easy for girls to get you involved in religion or anything they want to get you involved in. <laughs> I was extremely pious for a few years until I finally realized, wait, I'm just doing this for this girl. I don't really believe this stuff. I would say except for that uh, that hiccup, I've always been a skeptical person. When I was a little kid, I was always reading all the books about Bigfoot and everything, and I was watching In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy, and That's Incredible on TV, and Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, all of those things. And, you know, I think like any kid, any kid who's interested in science and interested in cool stuff, we just love those things. I was a firm believer in UFOs and Bigfoot and everything else, and it, it really wasn't until my brain was, uh, you know, in the teenage years and old enough to function that I started taking a skeptical look at them. But uh, for the last decades since then, uh, like so many of us, I've just been sort of a, a little island of skepticism among my family and friends and not really knowing that there's other people out there or that it's, you know, something you can take seriously and that it's important to do outreach on. So, again, it's, it's just another way that uh, these last few years of doing Skeptoid have been extraordinarily fulfilling for me. Uh, you know, our uh, podcast is sponsored by a science fiction book publisher. Are you a science fiction fan yourself? I am, although I, I have almost no time. I don't think I've read a single book since I started doing the podcast. But before that, I spent, uh, oh, probably five years going through everything that won the Hugo and Nebula Awards and uh, really enjoying it. What what have been some of the major milestones you've had uh, with the podcast? Major milestones uh, really has to do with the nature of the podcasting landscape, which is completely dominated by iTunes. For my first, oh, let's see, how long did that take? About the first 75 episodes, I would estimate, I was just kind of in the iTunes directory. It was growing organically. For some reason, people really enjoyed what I was doing, and so it grew kind of on its own volition. Um, There's really no kind of marketing that you can do or anything like that, certainly with a zero budget. And what really happened was in uh, January of 2008, I want to say, I think that's right, I finally made it onto the front page of iTunes in the science section. And that was where overnight the listenership went from 13,000 to 40,000. So that made a huge difference. So your show covers a wide variety of topics, and some of them are pretty technical. Um, what's your research process like, and what sort of resources do you use? You know, research is something that just kind of by necessity, I have to do almost all of it on the Internet. Increasingly, that's a better way to do research. As more and more books come online, uh, more and more research comes online, you can get accounts. Um, I have people who have given me access into various universities databases. And so I, I really have access to a tremendous wealth of data that's out there. And a lot of it's the latest and greatest. So I've spent about seven hours a week doing uh, research and writing on each episode. And I also have uh, an email list. Uh, it's just a Google group that people can sign up to. And whenever I have a specific question that I have not been able to easily find an answer for, I'll send it out to this group. There's about 300 people on this list right now. And uh, you know, it's amazing. No matter what the question is, somebody gives me an answer. I've got people from every scientific discipline out there. One that was really fun was just recently I, I did an episode on the Antikythera mechanism in Greece. And the question I put out there was, how the heck do you pronounce Antikythera? <laughs> and this guy answers, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> I just signed up for this list the other day. I live in Greece and I'm Greek. And this is the very first question I get. <laughs> So he hooked me up with some videos, and I got to hear examples of Antikythera. And, of course, part of the feedback that I got on that episode was, hey, you mispronounced it. You didn't <laughs> pronounce it the way it is on dictionary.com. <laughs> uh, there's been a lot of talk recently, uh, even a Hollywood movie, uh, about the world ending in the year uh, 2012. Oh, so, really? Uh, Has there? <laughs> <laughs> so how are we going to go out? Is it going to be with a banger or a whimper? You know, the only thing that concerns me about that is that some some nutcase out there is going to make it a self-fulfilling prophecy and do some kind of bombing or, or who knows what, just uh, believing that it's Judgment Day and it's his job to make sure everyone goes. Other than that, you know, there's all sorts of rumors on the Internet that are mostly rehashed rumors from the 1990s and early 2000s, things like Planet X and Nibiru and um, 
Planet X coming by the Earth and destroying the Earth by either crashing into it or swinging through the gravity field has come up twice in the past 20 years as a major prediction. And, you know, you've literally had people going to these old emails and backspacing over the old year and typing in 2012 and sending them out again. And people continue buying it. There's there's never been any, certainly coming from science or from archaeology, there's never been any reason to think anything special is going to happen in 2012. But uh, the rumors just keep coming. It's it's amazing. Uh, where does this one actually come from? Well, uh, it depends who you ask. There's all sorts of confluences. You know, the, the date, as is fairly commonly known, comes from the rollover of the Mayan calendar, the long count calendar, where you've got these 395-year periods called Bactoons, and the latest one, number 13, uh, ends in December of 2012 and starts over at number 14. And for some reason, people have decided, oh, this means the Mayans must have predicted the end of the world. Well, the Mayans have not disappeared. They still exist. And Mayans think this is hilarious. In fact, they're making money selling T-shirts off of it. The Mayans have never had any such prediction. It's never had any kind of a meaning like that to to Mayans. And people who study the uh, the South American cultures, Mesoamerica, whether it's from an archaeological standpoint or a historical or cultural standpoint, they've never come across anything that would indicate the Mayans thought anything was going to happen on this date. So the most recent Indiana Jones movie was Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> oh, Are there such things as crystal skulls, and do they really have supernatural powers? The story is that this particular crystal skull, called the Mitchell Hedges Skull, which is the one that you see at the beginning of Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, the old TV show, uh, the story goes that this was found in an ancient Aztec or Mayan temple by, uh, by this uh, English adventurer's daughter. He was trying to market his daughter as being some sort of a, a Lara Croft character. And um, supposedly this skull had all sorts of mystical powers. Well, according to all the research that's later been done, uh, none of that has any truth to it at all. The crystal skull, that particular crystal skull, was one in a large batch that were made in Germany. And there was a French collector named Eugene Bobon, who is basically the model for Belloc in the, in the <laughs> Indiana Jones movies. And he bought all these crystal skulls and brought them back to England and to the Americas and sold them as if they were these ancient Mesoamerican artifacts. And that's exactly where uh, Mitchell Hedges bought his. He bought it from a, from a Tiffany's store in New York City um, where uh, Bobon had sold it. Uh, they've got the paperwork for the sale and everything. So Bebon, did uh, his face melt off at some point? Or <laughs> yes, it did. Oh well, we shouldn't uh, joke about such a tragic. Uh... <laughs> uh, okay, no. So mo uh, most people have probably heard of the Amityville Horror, uh, which inspired nine movies and even a Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode. Uh, so what can you tell us about the most famously haunted house in America? Yeah, you know that's another one of those stories that. When I was a kid, I, I read the—I don't think I ever read the novel about it, the novelization, but I, I read other references to it in books, and it's something that I fully believed. And, you know, I'd seen these TV shows where they had these recreations of the little mysterious face appearing at the window, the upstairs window in the house, and all these creepy things happening. And um, when I finally got around to doing that episode was the first time that I'd actually taken a look at what research had been done into the Amityville Horror already. And uh, what turns out with the Amityville Horror was um, the dates where these events supposedly happened were uh, right after The Exorcist came out in movie theaters. And The Exorcist was really, really popular at the time. And, and book publishers and TV networks, they all wanted to capitalize on that, say, you know, give us some haunted house stories, give us some creepy stories. So this guy who had just moved into the, into the town and his lawyer friend, they concocted this whole story. They sat down and wrote up the events and took it to a publisher. The publisher hired an author to write the book. And it consists almost entirely of events that are proven false. For example, uh, just to name a few things, at one time in the in the book, uh, there was cloven hoof prints in the snow outside the house. Well, it never snowed during the whole period the family lived in the house. There was cases where the police were called to the house in the book. The police never went to the house, and that's, you know, again, in black and white writing. 
there was events where windows and doors were torn off of their hinges and big violent spiritual acts. And uh, all the hardware in the house was found to be hanging on its original hardware. So really anything that could be falsified by physical evidence was easily falsified. And then you have, you know, basically the, the histories of these two men who sued each other after the book came out and became popular and started making money. That's when the lawsuits always tend to come out. And this, the, uh, the attorney and uh, George Lutz, the homeowner, sued each other for, you know, all sorts of things, you know, libel and this and that. And, and it all came out in court that they made the whole thing up. Actually, you know, that's, that's one thing that really strikes me listening to the show is you always start out describing the story. And I try to come up with some rational explanation that matches the witness accounts and things. Mm -hmm. And then most of the time, it actually turns out that the whole story is fiction from start to finish. Yeah. Um, does that still startle you when, to find out just how much of it is completely made up or are you used to it by now? I would say no, I'm used to it by now. So I'm, I'm, I'm not startled by it anymore. However, what I do find out is that although the stories are generally simply completely made up, that, that doesn't really leave me anything interesting to say. Skeptoid would be pretty darn boring if I just said, well, someone made it up. Never actually happened. That's the end of it. So what I've found is that if you research enough and if you dig far enough, you will find something that's really interesting, something in the germination of the story. So is it true that the world is secretly ruled by a cabal of extraterrestrial subterranean reptiles called reptoids? It, it is. Um, every once in a while, people ask me, have you ever come up with something and it turns out to be true? And yeah, <laughs> that's, that one's true. So wh where did this story come from? Okay, I I'm not sure exactly how the story that uh, world leaders are reptilians in disguise got started, but, but I was able to find what I believe is the earliest reference to uh, lizard people. And it has to do with an ancient Hopi Indian legend of a lizard clan. Now, now the Hopi did have clans named after animals. That's not unusual. They had the spider clan. They had the bear clan. They had the lizard clan. That doesn't mean that they were half spider, half humans walking around. That was just what they called their little clans. Now, back in the uh, mining days in Los Angeles, oh, was it around the late 1800s, I believe? People were sinking mines in, in the middle of the city anywhere they could, trying to find gold. One particular miner named Schufelt had blown through all his money and he hadn't found any gold yet. And so he had a, a little dousing pendulum. He would walk around with a pendulum and he would say, oh, there's got to be gold buried here. Now, whether he believed that, I don't know, but he gave that information to potential investors to get them to give him more money. And he actually hand-drew a map of what he believed was underneath the city of Los Angeles, which was this big, long network of caves with these gold treasure boxes here and there in caverns. And he was giving these out to investors, telling them, hey, we've got the proof right here in black and white science. Um, we just need a little bit more money to continue digging. Uh, he may have honestly believed he was going to find gold. I don't, I don't know. I suspect that he did. He was, after all, a miner. And the shape of these caverns were roughly in the shape of a lizard. So it's not much of a leap of logic to go from there to the Hopi Indian story of the uh, the lizard people. He got a hold of a gentleman from, um, uh, I believe, the Navajo tribe, who was supposedly an expert on these uh, these Hopi legends. And uh, this guy confirmed that, yes, the lizard people lived here and the lizard people lived under the ground. And that made it into the Los Angeles Times, this whole legend of the lizard people in the subterranean city under Los Angeles. And that, I think, is where the whole lizard people living in underground cities got started. From there, it's expanded, and now there's, you know, supposedly lizard underground bases in the military areas in New Mexico, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, all sorts of UFO nuts believe that we have these reptilian cities Often the reptiles and, and the gray aliens are talked about together as if they're fighting with one another or they're allies. It depends on whose account you read. And uh, nowadays, whenever you look at an old YouTube video that has poor compression artifacting and you freeze frame on George Bush's face or Obama's face while they're giving a speech and you can see that their face is blurred from the compression artifacting, they say, look, right there, 
his electronic disguise just glitched. Is is it just from websites, or have you actually met in person anyone who believed something that was that out there? I've had email exchanges with some of them, um, uh, but I've never met them face-to-face. Not sure I'd want to. <laughs> Especially if your disguise was slipping. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. i going to turn up the voltage on my little belt pack here. Oh, so uh, speaking of electronic glitching, um, you know, travelers are facing ever more restrictive rules when it comes to airplanes. Uh, can a person really scramble the navigation system of a jet just by turning on your iPod during takeoff or landing? That's uh, that, that's something that's kind of always been a pet peeve of mine ever since, you know, you have a digital watch or a 1.5 volt Palm Pilot or something and they won't let you use it on the plane. Uh, that's just so silly. Boeing and Airbus are well ahead of the curve on this. If cell phones could actually pose any kind of a threat to a commercial aircraft, you would be allowed to bring them on board in the same way that you're allowed to bring dynamite on board, which is hmm. not at all. Hollywood movies from Pulp Fiction to The Rock feature characters being saved from certain death by having a syringe stabbed directly into their heart. <laughs> Do you have any tips for listeners who want to try this at home? <laughs> yeah, just make sure you do it really hard and really fast. <laughs> yeah, I did an episode where we talked about movie myths, and that was one. You see it in, I don't know, there's half a dozen movies or so where someone takes a, a syringe full of adrenaline and dramatically stabs it into someone's heart. Puncture, make sure you puncture the breastbone or something like this. It's, it makes it makes great movie action, but uh, it's not true. There is no medical procedure where they inject your heart directly. It makes no medical sense. If you need to get medication into the heart, you put it into a vein anywhere in the body. You don't do it directly into the heart. Uh, everyone knows the name Nostradamus, uh, who's supposedly the greatest fortune teller who ever lived. What predictions uh, can we safely make about the year 2010 based on his writings? <laughs> uh, this year, 2010 or 2012? Yeah. No, no, this year. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> yeah, Nostradamus... Um, he wrote recipe books. He was a plague doctor. He did a lot of the extraordinary things. He was an astrologer. He was a, the closest thing to a real scientist that they had during the Renaissance uh, in Italy. What he was not was a prophet. He did write these quatrains that he called the prophecies, and it may well be that he believed that they were predictions of the future, but all of the Nostradamus translations that you see and all the predictions that you see they presume that he wrote in code. He did not. His writing was perfectly clear. But people say, oh, he was just talking in code. When he talks about the region in France called Hister, he was talking about Hitler, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and a lot of the Nostradamus predictions on the Internet are just made up. He never even said them at all. You see, what happened was during the 1800s in England, Pulp Fiction real Pulp Fiction, I'm not talking about the movie, was <laughs> was quite popular. And people were looking for uh, heroes in their Pulp Fiction, and they were looking for sorcerers and magicians. And somehow Nostradamus ended up on this list. And that's where the legend of Nostradamus began, was in these fiction accounts written in the 1800s, not with the actual man himself. And a lot of the authors who have written these pro-Nostradamus books saying that, oh, he was prophesying the future, they, they, they should know that. I mean, they researched him enough that they should know that Nostradamus, as we know him today, was a fictional construct. Someone like Nostradamus, who actually did do extraordinary accomplishments in his life, there are things he should be recognized for. All of that is lost and ignored because people want to believe this magical story that's untrue. So it's disrespectful to Nostradamus. And the same can be said of almost anything that I do an episode on. There are real things that we should be knowing about the Mayans that, that are interesting and that are useful. And too often we can't see that because of all this made-up junk that pop culture throws at us. So uh, Rhonda Burns's The Secret claims that all the most successful people throughout history have had access to the same hidden knowledge. Did you use The Secret to make Skeptoids so successful? And would you be <laughs> willing to reveal The Secret to us if we gave you a lot of money? The Secret. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, this is, this is one of Oprah's favorites. Hmm. Um, this goes back to the early 1900s. There was a movement called the New Thought Movement, and this is really where everything that we call New Age today, this is where it all came from. Now what they've been doing in the last uh, 
you know, really 30, 40 years since the 1970s, 1980s, when there was this resurgence of new age, they were just recycling some of these old books from the new thought movement from 75 years before. And that's exactly what Rhonda Byrne did with The Secret. There's nothing new in The Secret, which is to give the 10 second synopsis of it. It's just anything you believe will come true. If you believe you're going to win the lottery, you'll win the lottery. Um, if you get uh, raped, it's because you were thinking negative thoughts. So it's stupid and it's wrong, but it's really popular because it appeals to people's desire to find meaning in the universe. They want importance to be assigned to every little thing that happens. I took a critical thinking class in college, but it struck me after taking it that I never took one until college. And uh, I was thinking, shouldn't Shouldn't more people be exposed to the critical thinking skills younger in life? And uh, what can people do to sort of encourage that to happen? When I was in high school, I remember there was a critical thinking class, and it was all Plato and Socrates, mm. and could not possibly have been any less relevant to the mm. lives of high school students. And it was boring. And you come out of there, and you learn the Socratic questions, but it would probably never occur to you to try and apply that type of thinking to Rhonda Burns' The Secret, for example. That's what I think schools can do a much better job of, is making critical thinking more timely and making it more relevant by putting in the stuff that is in today's news, you know, the anti-vaccination, this pretend controversy over these, uh, these emails with the global warming so-called scandal. There's so much going on, science versus pseudoscience, it's an open battle. And schools can make kids aware of that and teach them how to think about that and teach them how to recognize which side has science going for it and which side has pseudoscience going for it. That's really easy to do when you know how, but almost nobody is given those tools today. You know, it's kind of a sad statement that people with podcasts are, are having to be the ones picking up the slack there. We are just I wish un unsung heroes. <laughs> well, I, I wish Skeptoid wasn't necessary, but I, I hear from teachers all the time. That's probably the largest group that I get feedback on is teachers. You know, I, I don't just have Skeptoid, the audio podcast. I also made this 40-minute video called Here Be Dragons at herebedragonsmovie.com. Download now. And a lot of teachers play that in their classes, high school, junior college, um, uh, some college courses. Uh, it always amazes me when I hear them that they that they play that, but they say, you know, they really appreciate it because it's really the only thing available. To me, that's shocking and it's terrifying that that's the best that teachers are able to find. You know, I did my best making it, but it's still nothing compared to what it could be if it had, you know, a budget and more than one person working on it. Speaking of that, actually, my next question was going to be that you're putting together this TV show called The Skeptologists. Um, yes. What's the current status of that? You know, any given proposal for a TV series has a snowball's chance in hell of ever getting on TV. And it may well be that that's the fate of the Skeptologist. What we did was to shoot a one-hour pilot episode, and we then took it on the round, you know, with an agent going to all the networks and everything, and we got a tremendous amount of feedback. And basically, we learned that our pitch, what we thought was good about the show, was completely unimportant to networks. Uh, we thought the networks were fed up with all the ghost hunting crap that's on TV right now. And so we, you know, made the show that's the antithesis of that. Well, it's the antithesis of, uh, of what's on TV because it's exactly not what they want on TV. They just want good entertainment. They don't care if the information's good or bad. So we've spent the last year or so completely revising it. I can't even tell you how many re-edits we've done of it. Uh, we're making a, a new pitch package. It's got a new title. It's got a new concept. It's got a much better and much clearer concept now. And really what's different about it is, fr from what we first made, is we're not just going out and debunking something, because that goes to the audience and takes something away from them. We're trying to give the audience something. So although we may take something away at the beginning of the show. But what's most important about the show is that we're giving them something even more interesting and even more fascinating to learn about. If we're going to talk about the reptoids in Los Angeles, we'll talk about these ancient Hopi legends. We want to give the audience something that's more interesting, 
than the pseudoscientific story that they'd heard, which is nonsense. So it's a positive experience, not a negative experience. And the other change we're making is we're really going through PBS. PBS is our number one goal now, not network television, because we just don't think that with a network we'd be able to make the show that we really want to make. Uh, with PBS, you've got a lot more control over the material. Downside is you don't make any money when you do it, and you have to provide all the budget yourself. So we are putting together a, a grant proposal uh, to bring the show to PBS, and uh, that's the current status. If uh, if listeners want to watch The Skeptologists or shows like it, is there anything they can do to help make that happen? Only a little at this point. Uh, if you go to the website, skeptologists.com, there is a little email address you can say, and just, just click that and send an email in that's saying, hey, I really want to see the show be on the air. That's part of our pitch package. We've got this enormous stack of emails that goes in with every with every presentation that we make. And that's very impressive, and that does carry weight. So that's that's the one thing that we're asking people to help us out with. And also, of course, if anyone is if anyone happens to work at a PBS station, the next step in our process of putting together this grant proposal is to get letters of intent from PBS stations. So if anyone works at a PBS station or knows someone and might be interested in, in seeing our pitch package, come to skeptologists.com and get a hold of us. Okay, and, and final question. On your show sometimes you mention your hot tub and invite people to drop by. Uh, <laughs> do you really have a hot tub, and has anyone ever taken you up on that offer? I, 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 I do. Uh, uh, I, <laughs> what kind of a question is that? You can, you can see pictures from the Skeptoid hot tub on, uh, on my <laughs> Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Brian Dunning. <laughs> All right, well, Brian Dunning of Skeptoid, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Well, thank you very much. This is always so much fun for me. It's great to meet you guys and great to talk about this stuff. All right. Thank you. Yep. Thanks, Brian. And that was our interview. All right. Thanks again so much to Brian for joining us on the show. I really I really got a kick out of that. So I, I really enjoy these sort of skeptical podcasts because really I am by nature just sort of a naive, trusting person. Hmm. And uh, it's nice to get some some of these things because I, I feel like I'm kind of arming myself against the, the number of people who want to lie to me out there in the world. You know, I'm the kind of person when I, when I was a kid, people would always be like, hey, did you know that they took the word gullible out of the dictionary? Hmm. And I'd be like, really? That's crazy. Why would they do that? It seems like such a useful word. And, mm -hmm. and then they'd be like, ha, 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 you're stupid. <laughs> and I'd just be like, I hate people so much. <laughs> So it's good to have a, a corrective for that. I was I was thinking that when I was uh, in preschool, basically, they took us over to this local cemetery, and we were walking around, and as we were leaving, this kid came up to me, and he's like, you didn't see it, but as you walked by that grave there, this skeleton arm reached out and tried to grab your ankle, and you just, you walked away just in time. It just missed you. And I was like, holy, holy crap, that's crazy. And I believed <laughs> that for years, you know. I was like, wow, that, that skeleton arm almost got me. But you know, like once once something's in your head, you believe it, and it never really gets reanalyzed unless there's some reason for it to. So, you know, years would pass, and I would, if someone had at that point had said, hey, there's a skeleton arm trying to grab you, I wouldn't have believed them. But since it was already in my head, you know, but then just one day I was thinking, I was like, wait a minute, there's no such thing as skeleton arms reaching out of graves to try to grab me. That kid lied to me. <laughs> and it really... It really made me angry. And so how old were you when you finally discovered that this was not true, Dave? I, I don't know, but it, it way, way older than I should have been, you know. <laughs> and like put, last year? or Yeah, yeah, I was probably about 30. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like, like for kids, I mean, it's just so easy to, to lie to kids. You can just tell them anything. You know, I was thinking about when I was a kid and I believed in Santa Claus, mm -hmm. except in our house, the, our chimney went straight down into the boiler. So I was really worried, like, if Santa Claus came into our house, he would just get incinerated. Which, I mean, I didn't care really about Santa Claus, but then the I presents. would get presents. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. And so so I, I raised this concern to my parents, and they're like, oh, don't worry. At our house, Santa Claus just comes through the door. Hmm. And I was like, but isn't the door locked? Should we leave it unlocked for Santa Claus? They're like, no, no, he just uses magic to come in through the door. And I'm like, okay. Huh? That sounds reasonable. And uh, and I think I'm kind of surprised. I'm kind of surprised your dad went with that, being the eminent physicist that he is. You know, you think he would uh, uh, not want to fill your head with such nonsense. 
I don't think he ever really had a problem with that now that I think about it. But uh, <laughs> Filling your head with nonsense? Yeah, or just, you know, <laughs> just screwing with me. But uh, <laughs> that, that's actually a debate, I think, that parents can legitimately have is do you tell your kids about Santa Claus or not? And I think there are good arguments on both sides. I mean, one argument for doing it is that it's it can be kind of a um a, a learning experience um where you know it's it's one experience you can have where you know you realize that you can be wrong about things mm -hmm. that you're going to have to change your minds and that you can't just be certain of what you believe just because you believe it and so in that mm -hmm. way i think you know from us even from a scientific standpoint it can be a valuable thing to do but or i don't know i'm i'm conflicted on on that well well, sadly, I think it's it's just a reason to get, uh, or it's just a way to get kids to behave, you know. <laughs> because if you're if you're bad, you get on the bad list, and all you get is a lump of coal in your stocking. But do you think any parent has ever actually given their kid coal for Christmas because they were bad? I don't know, but that would be awesome, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't, I can't say that I've ever heard of it happening, but uh, I kind of want to have kids just so I can do that. <laughs> um, That's but... the only reason, though. I wouldn't want to have them for any. Other <laughs> Maybe I could just borrow someone else's kids. <laughs> Sneak down somebody's chimney and just steal all the presents and leave coal. <laughs> That'll be a good learning experience. But only if their kids were, you know, somebody like some neighbor whose kids are bad for, that you know for a fact, you know. Actually, Santa Claus is a very good uh, example for baby's first skeptical experience, you know, because he's so fat, right? And so, like, how could he ever fit down the chimney anyway? Plus, you know, that's that's just one minor detail in the whole really improbable story of santa claus that uh you know can sort of uh start the mind wondering although it just occurred uh, to me we didn't give any kind of spoiler warning or anything oh so yes what if there are like i mean if if there are any kids listening to this they're all just they're just crying right now how, how, <laughs> how horrible although really if you let your kids listen to our show i mean really you you deserve whatever uh whatever happens. i agree but then i mean it's not just your parents right i mean i was thinking that in in elementary school we we seriously we and it's so strange thinking back on this now, but we did this whole unit on the Loch Ness Monster. Mm. You know, if you were going to like try to look for the Loch Ness Monster, where would you set up your, your observation posts and stuff like that? And I, I came out of this unit totally convinced that, you know, I would tell my parents, you know, oh, the, the Loch Ness Monster, it's a plesiosaur a surviving, you know, mm -hmm. a surviving dinosaur. It's, that's, that's really what the preponderance of the evidence suggests. And, and, and my parents are just like, what are they teaching you at that school? <laughs> you know? And we had a, you know, sort of a teaching assistant and she was going to Scotland and she was going to go to Loch Ness. And then mm -hmm. she came back with all these pictures of just kind of turbulent water. And she's mm -hmm. like, there it is. I, I saw the Loch Ness monster. I mean, I don't want to say for a fact that, that this was the Loch Ness monster, but no, it totally was. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. That's kind of strange, isn't it? That, you know, in school they would teach you to believe in the Loch Ness monster. I don't know. Did you, did anything <laughs> that ever happen to you? Uh, I don't remember being taught anything like that in school, but uh, well, once you learn about the Loch Ness monster or or, or Bigfoot or anything like that, uh, I mean, I think that's something that as kids that we certainly latch onto and think like, ah, God, wouldn't that be so cool if that was true? You know, I mean, I think that's one of the things that's most disappointing about learning critical thinking skills and and just learning more about science that it sort of robs a, a lot of the magic out of the world. Like you know, when you when you have this idea that there, oh, there might be this surviving dinosaur, and and you know, we and it lives in Loch Ness, you know, that's cool. And it's like, you know, it kind of leaves you with the feeling that there might be like undiscovered things left in the world that might be really awesome that will be be unveiled someday. But uh, alas, it just doesn't seem very likely that any of this stuff is ever true. You know, having learned sort of the the stories behind so many of these made up things, it does make it harder to enjoy. Like movies, like I don't think I could watch Indiana Jones the mm. same way. Uh, you know, speaking of speaking of Indiana Jones, um, had you actually heard of Crystal Skulls before that movie came out? Because I hadn't. I hadn't. No. Okay, and uh, you know the funny thing when Brian was saying, you know, that he has this video on his website and download now. I was thinking, and if you order in the next fifteen minutes, you get a free Crystal Skull. <laughs> but you know, I mean, since all my friends these days, you know, are basically all really smart well-educated people and they don't tend to believe you know in in sort of really dubious stuff like that it, it's sort of hard for me to comprehend just the population at large what kinds of weird beliefs are, are commonplace but I, I kind of think back like you know sort of in high school you're more just sort of forced to associate with people that you know as an adult i wouldn't associate with and there was this kid i used to know and i mean he would literally read the national Enquirer and take everything <laughs> in it at face value i mean everything and 
and you just could not reason with him. I mean, he would just come in and, and tell you like Atlantis is Atlantis is real. Look, there's there's photographs of it, or like you know, no, dude, Noah's Ark. It's that's a proven historical fact. They found the wood from it, and you would just like you would just say, I mean, if that were true, don't you think that it would be in news sources aside from just the National Enquirer and Nothing like that would penetrate. It was really, mm-hmm. it was really something, you know. And so I never believed in it, in Atlantis or or something like that. But I, I did certainly, I was certainly about fifty fifty for a long time on on alien abduction, mm. and uh, you know, because that's not as that's not necessarily unscientific. I mean, it mm-hmm. doesn't really violate the laws of science that there could be aliens visiting us or whatever. It's it's just that when you actually look into it, there's not really any reason to to think that any of the particular stories are true. But I, I can remember when the X-Files first came out that I was still at, at an age where I was about 50% on whether alien abduction was real. And so this, the show was really kind of scary for that reason. And I can remember just being so angry at the government for... You know, I, I, like I, didn't, I wasn't sure that there were aliens visiting us, but I was sure that the government knew something they were hiding because that's, that's really how it's couched on all the shows. And I would just be like, why won't they just release the files? Then we know. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But all those, all those like UFO shows, there's, there's no time whatsoever given to another viewpoint, you know, like, like Brian was talking about. So I don't see how any normal person just watching television is supposed to come away with any other uh, impression. Any kid, anyway, watching mm-hmm. it is supposed to come away with any other impression. And you know, the and when you're a kid, you always think that people on TV, who, like anyone's on TV, must be an expert, or else they wouldn't mm-hmm. be on TV, you know. And mm-hmm. and so they would always have these people, and they've filmed some bright spot in the sky with a shaky camera and you know it's just a few seconds and and they'll say well i've analyzed this film and this craft is traveling at 10,000 miles an hour and no human craft can travel that fast so what other conclusion is there and and as a mm-hmm. kid you're just like yeah wow i can't find a flaw in his logic <laughs> and and now of course i'm like what the, what the hell you can't calculate the speed of something from a <laughs> shaky camera where you don't know how far away it is or anything you know but uh, but so the X Files when it came out you know was was really creepy to me and I, I really enjoyed that show and um, you know in the X Files it's about these two FBI agents one of whom is a skeptic and one of whom is a believer and they investigate paranormal cases and I guess the original premise of the show which would have been kind of cool was that half of the time it was going to turn out that the skeptic was right and half the time it was going to turn out that the believer was right mm-hmm. and uh, so you wouldn't know. <laughs> going into a particular episode and then i you know I, I guess they tried to do that and the stories where the skeptic was right just turned out to not be that interesting to watch mm. and so they made it so in every episode basically the believer is right or, or at least it's uh ambiguous but it's strongly uh suggested that that's the case and so you have so it really makes the skeptic look like a complete idiot because every mm-hmm. episode they see, say, they see like some aliens or something and the skeptic's like i don't believe in any of this alien stuff and just the, the longer the show goes on, it just becomes more and more ridiculous because, you know, the skeptic has seen aliens like a hundred times and she still mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't believe aliens are real. And and so a lot of skeptics are kind of uh, critical of the show for that reason. I, I, I would have certainly liked it if X-Files was more like the, you know, original idea as you were describing, because I, I, I think that would also make it more interesting. But it, it, that's one of the things that I find frustrating a lot of, about a lot of these, you know, portrayals of the paranormal in either fiction or, or film. It's because to make the story work, almost always the paranormal event is true. And so if there is a skeptic involved, they almost always come out looking like an idiot, as you said, it happens in the X-Files. And while I enjoy reading these stories about the paranormal, because, you know, I'm not going to read anything about it in science journals since it's all (laughs) BS, in order to enjoy it in a piece of fiction, I have to also put up with the fact that the skeptic, the person who's reasonable, you know, starts off from the reasonable position is, is the one that is made to look like an idiot. And that sort of rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, and like in, in real yeah. life, if you're at a like in a, uh, an isolated house or something with a bunch of people, and you hear some strange noise, and you say, "Oh, don't worry, it's probably just the wind," you know, it probably is just the wind. But in so like every movie you've ever seen in your entire life, when anyone ever says it's just the wind, then they get ripped apart by a ghost like five <laughs> minutes later, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's like you can't, you almost can't help having your your worldview shaped by all these movies, even though they're they're fiction. It was actually, you know, I, I heard Michael Shermer say something. He's the um, the editor of, I think, Skeptic Magazine. But he said something mm-hmm. that was interesting where he was like the only show, basically, in, in popular culture that gives a fair shake to skeptics is Scooby-Doo. <laughs> right? Because like in Scooby-Doo, there's like a ghost or something and then they investigate and then it always turns out to be a guy in a suit. 
And, the rubber mask. Yeah, and of course, in real life, that's what always, and as as far as you can tell, that's what always happens. Uh, right. But it's just that one show in uh, in, in in sort of TV movie fiction that, that mm -hmm. presents that kind of thing. In the realm of nonfiction, though, on, on television, there's a lot of interesting science shows on these days uh, that sort of deal with some of these topics. Like there's Mythbusters, which um, always takes some sort of claim. It's not always necessarily a sort of paranormal claim like we've been talking about. But, uh, you know, they apply the same sort of critical reasoning to each of these uh, claims to see if uh, they're real or not. And I mean, so the fact that that show is popular and it's been on for a long time, I find it, I, I find that encouraging. And I mean, you know, the whole Discovery Channel basically is, is pretty encouraging in, in a lot of the, the shows they have, although they actually do air some of those stupid alien uh, alien autopsy type uh, documentary things. But other, uh, you know, in general, they do air a lot of good science shows that actually make science seem fun and interesting. And of course, one of the best ways to do that is to blow stuff up a lot. And, uh, you know, Mythbusters does that. So that's one of the reasons I like it. So, I mean, can you th like thinking back, do you can you think of sort of paranormal things that you believed in when you were younger? And, um, you know, honestly, I mean, the the biggest disappointment I can remember um, like that was probably that when I discovered that pro wrestling was fake. <laughs> uh I mean, you know, it's not a, <laughs> it's not a, not a paranormal thing, but, uh, actually, I mean, I guess they do sort of inject some paranormal elements into wrestling sometimes. Like some of the wrestlers, uh, appear to have some sort of mystical powers, like, uh, like that guy, the Undertaker. Although I mean, I already knew it was fake by the time he came around, but that was very disappointing to me as a child to, to learn that wrestling was fake. Cause I mean, I can remember some of the, the UFO shows I would watch and, uh, there were, there, there were particular ones I remember where, because, you know, the people are always like, everyone says I'm crazy, but I'm not crazy. You have to believe me. And just my personality is like, oh, well, no, I believe you, you know. And mm -hmm. But then sometimes there are people and you're just like, no, okay, you're just crazy. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, were, there were these two women that they, I saw interviewed one time. And the interviewer is like, so you're both alien abductees. And they're like, yep, every Friday. <laughs> and, and he's like, well, what, what do you mean every Friday? And they're like, no, every Friday we get abducted by aliens. And he's like, what, together? And they're like, oh, yeah, both of us, every, you know. And, and I'm just like, okay, come on. Even I don't believe this. And there was this other one I saw where there are these people who go out into the New Mexico desert to sort of defend Earth <laughs> against aliens. And they were doing so with, I mean, literally, I'm not making, up, making this up. They had, like, colanders on their heads as helmets connected mm -hmm. by plastic tubing to super soakers. And these would sort of channel their psychic energy. And they could like, oh. shoot aliens with them and make the aliens, you know, banish the aliens. I see. And so stuff like that, I mean, you know, once you've seen people like that, you're just like, okay, now. <laughs> <laughs> I assume the calendar protected them from the evil mind rays of the aliens as well or something, right? Yeah, only only if it has a tinfoil lining. Oh, you know, that's, yeah, right. That's important. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there was this uh, novel I read by Christopher Buckley called Little Green Men sort of a satirical novel and uh, the premise of that is that it's during the cold war and the um the the u.s is trying to keep stalin you know making him think that maybe we have access to super advanced alien technology and so there's sort of a government program to create this false impression that we maybe have some alien stuff and so there's a <laughs> a government bureaucrat and his job is to abduct they have sort of um special ops soldiers kidnap people and then release them and make it look like it was uh, aliens the, the, the part i thought was really funny was that they have this computer to select just to select the name of who the the victim is going to be and the computer has this super advanced algorithm to determine somebody who is marginal enough that nobody's really going to believe them but that the story will still get out there you know mm -hmm. and this is why people who seem to get abducted you know it's never like the president of Kraft Foods or something that gets abducted by aliens. It's always somebody sort of on the margins. And, and this explains why that would be. <laughs> there was uh, there was another, <laughs> another program I saw one time. This was on the Learning Channel, or, or as I like to call it, the least accurately named television channel in human. <laughs> and so it was this program about Bigfoot. And I, it was, they went to like a Bigfoot academic conference, sort of. And I guess I had never heard of this, but I guess in the Bigfoot community, you know, Bigfoot people who study Bigfoot call themselves Bigfootologists. And in the Bigfootology community, there's a schism between kind of the old guard and the new wave. And the old guard are people who just think that Bigfoot is just a an animal, you know, just a primate who hasn't been discovered conclusively mm -hmm. yet. 
And then the new wave people say that's ridiculous. You know, if it was just if Bigfoot was just a primate, we would have evidence of it by now. You know, Bigfoot must have some means of eluding detection, meaning he must have a UFO that he flies around in. Right. Mm-hmm. And 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 the old guard people are like, that's no, that's ridiculous. You're <laughs> you know, you're bringing shame upon the noble profession of Bigfootology by introducing <laughs> all this nonsense into it. Shouldn't uh, shouldn't shouldn't uh, Bigfoot scientists instead of calling themselves Bigfootologists, shouldn't they call themselves Big Podiatrists? <laughs> well, next time you're at this conference, you can make a motion to that effect. But uh, I don't know. Did you see like it was a year or two ago? There was uh, a story that was in the news about one of the NASA landers had taken a picture that seemed to show Bigfoot on Mars. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, I mean, it was on all the news networks, you know, they're like, Bigfoot's on Mars, and there's this picture, and it does, it looks kind of like Bigfoot, sort of, when you first look at it, except that he doesn't seem to have any legs, you know, and you would think that if Bigfoot had anything, it would be legs, because otherwise, mm-hmm. why does he make his big foot steps? If you if you sort of look at it more closely, it just kind of looks like, a, you know, a marble statue that someone just carved the, the head and torso and arms and didn't finish mm-hmm. it. But then if you actually go to the NASA's website and look at the larger picture from which this was taken it's obvious that the area that's supposed to be bigfoot is like a centimeter tall <laughs> and uh so it's just like you know how does stuff how does stuff like this get on get on the news and there's so many other important things that they just completely ignore uh, well what i want to know is who who uh who made that one that one centimeter tall marble statue and left it on mars <laughs> that's the that's the question yeah when you were mentioning the amityville horror Earlier, it was reminding me of this funny story I heard where I th- I'm pretty sure it was Joe Nickel, um, but some, you know, guy who investigates this stuff. And, you know, like a radio station or something asked if he and this psychic woman would go to the Amityville Horror House together, you know, sort of like a Mulder and Scully team and just report on what their experiences were. And so he was like, OK, sure. So he met up with a psychic woman and they drove over to the house and sort of park in front of in front of this house. And he notices that there's a police car parked on the corner and so they get out and approach the house and the psychic says oh i feel the presence of evil Ah!" sort of collapses on the ground and has convulsions so this investigator is standing there and the police get out of their car and come over and want to know what's going on and so Mm -hmm. he explains to them that that this woman is is psychic and that this is the amityville horror house and and the police say no no you've got the wrong house that's two blocks up Well, apparently the evil must be in the water or something because, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the whole neighborhood is evil. I guess there's just, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of evil houses. It's a, it's a, that's what they, it's a bad neighborhood, you know? Yeah. That's what they mean when they say bad neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. It's infested with ghosts. But I don't know. I guess I wanted to talk about some of the movies that have come out in the last couple of years that have dealt with, uh, with UFOs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, so one I wanted to talk about was M. Night Shyamalan's Signs. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, let's see, if you haven't seen this movie, basically, uh, Mel Gibson. Don't! <laughs> basically, you know, Mel Gibson is a, a priest, I think, who's lost his faith. And after his wife died in an accident, and then aliens attack his house. It's, it's, you can't talk about this movie without spoilers, so I'm just going to give a spoiler warning right here. And. He, his family is able to fight off the aliens and all sorts of improbable coincidences happen that convince him that everything happens for a reason. And so then he's regained his faith at the end of the movie. But it's just like a, the kind of movie that's it's sort of science fiction written by someone who doesn't read science fiction, you know, or anything, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, it, it turns out that the aliens flesh can be melted instantaneously by contact with water and so i just want you to consider john this question if your flesh could be instantaneously melted by water would you come to earth a and b would you do so completely naked (laughs) um i do not believe so so um that just shows that i'm smarter than all the aliens out there yeah and um and, and so sort of the, the theme of the movie is that everything happens for a reason. But I was thinking about this, and I'm like, well, obviously not if you're an alien, right? Mm-hmm. You know, then it's just like, then the theme is just like, the universe hates aliens. <laughs> <laughs> right? They must have a huge complex, I mean, if that's the case. You know, <laughs> oh, God, we can't do anything! 
Actually, that's not that's not the first time that uh, aliens have been uh, dissolved by water, though. In that alienation uh, movie and television series that followed, uh, the aliens in that were also, uh, you know, well, in that case, they couldn't uh, they couldn't come into contact with seawater. And to be fair, that they crash landed on our planet, they didn't mean to land here. So obviously, that's a little bit different. They were much smarter than these aliens and signs because the aliens and signs came here on purpose. So. Yeah, well, it seems like, I mean, there's really a proud tradition of really stupid aliens. I mean, you think going back to H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, where... Yeah. You know, yeah, shouldn't they have breather masks or something so that they couldn't catch our cold? Yeah, I mean, the aliens... Spoiler alert, like, sorry. Could, yeah, yeah, and then there's... That's another spoiler <laughs> alert, but I mean, there's... Well, I mean, it's like a hundred, over a hundred years old, so to be fair. Yeah. But there's just, I mean, there's this, this problem. It's sort of a, a problem for science fiction writers where if the plot hinges on an advanced civilization not knowing some clever thing that you thought of, it doesn't really work, right? Because if you can think of it, surely someone who lives with a spaceship every day and has a whole civilization built around that is going to think of it, right? Mm -hmm. You would think so. Well, you know, in uh, in the Tim Powers novel, The Anubis Gates, there are people and they have kind of chains going from their ankles down to the ground, and this allows evil spells that are cast at them. The, the magic sort of goes into their body, but then travels through this chain into the ground, and so the magic doesn't affect them. Mm -hmm. Apparently there was, like, the story I heard anyway was that he was just at the doctor one time, and this guy came in with some some complaint, some really sort of outlandish complaint, and the doctor told this guy to just take a bunch of paper clips and clip them together and tie them around his ankle and have it go down to the ground and that all the toxic energy would flow through these paper clips into the ground. And the guy was like, all right. And he just, he was happy and went away. One, you know, another satisfied customer. And so he died, I assume. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not friends with the guy or anything. Actually, that's one that I actually did believe in was the, that you would stab someone in the, in the heart with a syringe. And I, I can remember, you know, I, I think I guess I first saw that in The Rock. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the beginning, there's a scene where there's a, a package that, that they suspect is a, a bomb or something, and they take a doll out of it, and it starts spraying poison gas. And uh, and so they tell the guy he has to stab a syringe into his heart to save his life. And I just found that so terrifying. I was like, wow, mm -hmm. I don't know if I would have the guts to stab a syringe into my heart. I guess I'm just not cut out to be a, a scientist. Mm-hmm. And then in Pulp Fiction, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. I wonder... Well, you know, I I, I remember uh, I remember it in The Rock too, and I also thought, remembered that for like a long time. And and you know, once I started, uh, I got heavily into reading medical thrillers, and and I was like, I was always thinking about that when I was reading these medical thrillers. I was like, oh, that, I bet that's going to happen at some <laughs> point. But most of the time, those were written by like actual doctors, and so they would have known that there was no reason to ever do that. I am kind of curious about the treatment of it in Pulp Fiction, though, because it's like. She's having a drug overdose. You would think that there are numerous actual real-life treatments that you could give someone for a drug overdose, so I'm not sure why he went with that, except, uh, like Brian was saying, it's, it is very dramatic on film to see it happen. Well, he just didn't know. I mean, I mean, I don't know, but, you know, you just see something in a movie, yeah, and you're like, oh, all right, well, somebody must have researched this, you know? Yeah, and it was before the Internet, really, so, you know, we can't expect people to have done research before the Internet. Yeah, well, I mean, no, I mean, before the internet, it was really <laughs> hard to find out, you know, um, like when Snopes.com started, and I just couldn't believe how many things they had that I totally believed that somebody had told me. Like, uh, you know, when I was living in L.A., a, a classmate of mine told me this story. This had happened to somebody she knew, uh, of course, and this person had been walking along the beach and had found uh, a half-drowned dog, and they had taken it... <laughs> taken it home with them to sort of care for it and left it in their apartment with their cat and gone off to a store to get some dog food or something. And when they came back, their cat had just been torn apart and its body parts and blood was just all over the apartment. And it turned out that this was not, in fact, a drowned dog, but a type of Chinese rat hmm. uh, that, that eats cats. So she told me this story and I was like, wow, that's, that's crazy. Truth is stranger than fiction, you know. Mm -hmm. And so actually, at the time, my roommate was from China, and so I, I was like, you wouldn't believe this story I just heard. And he was like, I do not believe that there was such a Chinese rat. So And so, yeah, so we, we type it in to Google, and Snopes.com comes up and says, nope, this is absolutely not true. But I mean, so, I mean, do you think now with, with the internet and shows like Skeptoid, do you think that this will have an effect that now that it's so easy to find out the truth? 
I don't know. I think the internet probably does as much harm as good, uh, just because there are so many sites out there that are just written by knuckleheads. This is certainly something I've encountered trying to research medical information on the internet. It seems like 80% of the sites that come up, once you poke around in them a little bit, they just seem to be just quack mm-hmm. kind of sites selling just junk remedies and things. Well, I mean, like we've discussed this before and um, privately, like when we were talking about, uh, you know, caffeine and, you know, artificial sweeteners and all that. And like, if you do research either of those things, you know, all these different sites claiming one thing or another, and it is very hard to tell which ones are legitimate and which ones are not. So I, I think the bottom line is that really the only sorts of information on the Internet that you can be absolutely 100% sure you can trust is the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast. Do you agree? Yes. And that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And be sure to join us next week when we'll interview Sherry Priest, author of the new alternate history Civil War steampunk zombie novel Bone Shaker. See you then. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Tor.com. For this episode's show notes or to subscribe to this podcast, visit Tor.com and click on Podcasts. For more information about your hosts, visit JohnJosephAdams.com or DavidBarkerkley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Deadstill 9 Entertainment. If you've enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.